Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 94. For each of these people, referring to Noah or Abraham or Jacob, Gidon, Manoah, in the biblical narratives and stories, each one had a salvation moment that came to be entirely genuine when they crossed over from spiritual childhood into spiritual manhood. Hello, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and you're tuned in to Real Israel Talk Radio. Shalom. This is episode 94 and part 29 in my wrap-up studies of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on the whole study of defining biblical love. Now, previously we learned from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, that childhood has a verbal language all of its own. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. To speak, understand, and think like a child collectively has a specific meaning. Paul's description of a child is about spiritual development. In Paul's awareness, his view appears to depict a young and inexperienced mind when it comes to the wisdom, insight, and, should I say, profundities of the ideas that are found written in Scripture. Therefore, he concludes his statement by saying, But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Put another way, growing up from childhood to manhood carries the meaning of putting aside theological naivety, leading one to a religiously set-apart or holy lifestyle. So, in Yeshua's day, the students and teachers from the religious theological schools sincerely trusted that if one did not advance in the processing and reasoning of Pharisaic theology, then one remained as a child in the spiritual and biblical sense of the word. And this is what drives the dialogue between Yeshua and the religious teachers of his day in John chapter 7. Let's take a look at John seven fifteen. How does this man know letters, having never studied? That's what they said amongst themselves when they were discussing theology with Yeshua. Well, in facing this judgment, Yeshua answered the question, and here's what he said in John 7, 16 through 19. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from Elohim or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, 
and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law or the Torah, and yet none of you keeps the law? The inference is clear that they were not learning from Yehovah according to the tree of life, or in Hebrew, the Etzachayim, but rather the scribe and the Pharisee were feeding their soul from the law or the Torah of sin and death in the tree of the knowledge of good but evil. They were doing very little to seek the wisdom the understanding, and the knowledge of the tree of life that Yeshua came to glorify. Thus, we can genuinely appreciate Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 9-10. He said, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, or if you will, complete, has come, then that which is in part will be done away. You see, with the teaching ministry of Yeshua, it was a problematic scribe and Pharisee challenge to step out of their established religious traditions and to step into the eternal work and sayings of Yeshua, who identified himself as the way the truth, and the life of Yehovah's tree of life. Again, the Etzachayim. So Paul candidly understood the problem when he said, quote, When I became a man, I put away childish things. This being said, Paul then pens the words of verse 12 in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's what he says. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. We learn here that it is not so much that any of us can say, well, I know Yehovah, because in reality, we do not at least not in the way that we will know him in the future, but for sure, he knows us very well. Here are a few examples from Scripture. Genesis 7-1 Then Jehovah said to Noah, Come into the ark. Here the Hebrew word is teva, that is the term for the ark, which also, by the way, had an ancient meaning to describe the concept of the word devar, the logos in Greek, the memora in Aramaic. So to say the word teva, or the ark, like the ark of Noah, it really was much like a synonym to describe the concept of the word, the devar, the logos, or the memora that is, the word of Jehovah. So he says in Genesis 7, 1, You and all your household come into the ark, because I have seen you just or righteous before me in this generation. 
And also in Genesis 15, verse 6, we learn this. And he, referring to Avraham, believed in Jehovah, and he accounted it to him for justness or righteousness. That is, because Avraham believed in Jehovah or trusted in Jehovah, he was credited with justness or righteousness. And that is the very same thing that happened with Noah or Noah when he entered into the ark in Genesis 7-1. He was declared just or righteous in his generation. A similar knowing Yehovah event happened to another man by the name of Manoach. He was the father of Samson or Shimshon. Let's take a look at the story in Judges 13, 18 through 22. And the messenger, here referring to the angel or the word of Yehovah, he said to him, referring to Manoah, the father of Samson or Shimshon, quote, To what end, or as it's understood from Hebrew, to what purpose will you request this of me? Since he is wonderful. This idea of wonderful in this passage is the Hebrew term pe lamed aleph, or we could say pele. It's a term that is identified in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, or in Hebrew chapter 9, verse 5, and it refers to the son of yud the Messiah, the Word. He is called the Wonderful. So we go on in the text, Manoach took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to Jehovah. And he did a wonderful. Well, who did a wonderful? The Malach, the angel, the word of Jehovah, who's called the wonderful. He did a wonderful while Manoach and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the messenger of Jehovah, that is, the word, ascended in the flame of the altar. Now, you can imagine what was going on in the mind and heart of Manoach and his wife. When they saw this, it says in the text, quote, They fell on their faces to the ground. When the messenger of Jehovah appeared no more to Manoach and his wife, then Manoach knew that he was the messenger of Jehovah, that is, the angel of Jehovah, or the word of Jehovah, also called the wonderful of Jehovah. And so Manoach said to his wife, We have seen Elohim. And I'm kind of putting an exclamation point there because the text just before that statement is that they were afraid. They were scared to death, literally scared to death. So once again, here is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. Given so many narratives relating to the truth of the word in Hebrew scripture, it is not difficult to imagine what might be going through Paul's mind in saying that we shall all come to know Jehovah face to face at some future date. That is, to know Jehovah is to intimately experience him based on the Hebrew word yada, as it's referenced in Genesis 4.1, where it is written in that statement, ladaat, that is, to know. So Paul is deriving the idea of intimately knowing Jehovah from the Hebrew statement panim el panim, faces to faces or faces toward faces. For example, in Genesis 32, 29 through 30, which is understood from the Hebrew of verses 30 and 31, we read this, Then Yaakov, or Jacob, asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And uh, he is speaking to the one that he was wrestling with in Genesis chapter 32. And here is what the malach, or the angel, or the messenger, said to Yaakov or Jacob. Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Yaakov or Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, as it is translated to English, for I have seen Elohim, or God, faces to faces, or face to face, and my life is saved, or my life is preserved. Here we learn that Yaakov put away spiritually childish things and grew up to become a spiritual man in that he wrestled with an appearance or manifestation of Messiah Yeshua, the Word. At that moment, he was called saved, meaning he was just and righteous. Now, a similar occurrence also happened to the great ancient judge Gidon or Gideon in Judges chapter 6. Let's take a look at Judges 6, 22. Now Gidon perceived that he was the messenger of Jehovah. Here in the Hebrew, it is saying that he perceived he was the Malach or the angel or the Messiah, the word of Jehovah. So Gidon said, Ah, Adonai Jehovah, for I have seen the messenger, that is, the Messiah, the word of Jehovah, Panim El Panim, face to face or faces toward faces. So that is why he had such a great exclamation in the term, ah, like, oh my, what did I just see here? Okay. For each of these people, referring to Noah or Abraham or Jacob, Gidon, Manoach, and 
really so many other untold others in the biblical narratives and stories, each one had a salvation moment that came to be entirely genuine when they crossed over from spiritual childhood into spiritual manhood, when each of them looked at and believed in Messiah, the Word, or if you would, in the Logos or the Memra in Aramaic. They saw the angel of Jehovah, the messenger, the wonderful of Jehovah. They all saw him, and doing so only by perceiving him in part, because it was a manifestation of Messiah, as though looking into his manifestation through a kind of a dim and foggy mirror. They grew up into spiritual manhood at that moment, and each one of them believed. And this is how Yeshua expressed it in John chapter 20. Take a look at verses 27 through 30. Then, after Yeshua's resurrection, he then appeared to all of the Talmudim or disciples, and he said to Thomas or Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Now look at his statement. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered Yeshua, and he said to him, My master and my Elohim. Yeshua said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then this beautiful statement follows, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this is how the writer of the book of Hebrews expressed it in chapter 12. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. God, or Elohim, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all, through whom also he made the worlds. And precisely what is it that Jehovah's Son spoke unto us, according to these words of Hebrews 12, 1 through 2? What did he say? Well, I have a passage here for you from Mark 16, 16. Yeshua said, He who believes and is immersed in the Word, or baptized, I suppose, if you want to use it that way, that one will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And in John 3, 17-18, For Elohim, or God, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the unique 
son of Elohim, or the Son of God. Consequently, we have this statement of the truth from the word of Jehovah, built or baked into the context of Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So now let's take a look at 1 John 4, 18 through 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect or, if you will, complete in love. Then the statement, we love him because he first loved us. Now let's go here to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life. And in John 13.35, Yeshua says, By this all will know that you are my disciples or my followers, if you have love for one another. Bundling together the teaching of 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul originally penned to the Corinthian believers in Yeshua, we are going to learn the following. Faith, hope, and love. Now, I think it is plausible that these three components— faith, hope, and love, are attached to Yehovah's published formula of biblical theology in Genesis 1.26. Let's take a look at that for a moment. Then Elohim, or God, said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So this leads me to consider the following possible associations. Faith is associated with the Son, Yeshua. Hope is associated with the Spirit of the Word. And love is associated with the name of the Father. Or put another way, our faith in Yehovah is believing in Yeshua the Son. Our hope in Yehovah believes by the Spirit of the Word. And our love in Yehovah is in and from the Father. Now, of course, there will be some who say, Oh, no, Avi is a Trinitarian Christian. Uh, yeah, I've heard it before. Look, my response is the ancient Jewish reply long ago, long before Christianity ever came to be established. I know there's all kinds of teachings against the Trinitarian formula. But I got to tell you, if you go way back before Christianity, you're going to find this idea all over Hebrew Scripture. And in my opinion, everyone would do well to examine Hebrew passages such as Jeremiah 31.9, Isaiah 66.13, and Isaiah 37.5, and also Isaiah 48.16-17. through 17. Okay, regardless, all of this is a combined lesson of its own, and we're not going to tackle this today. No way. 
So let's move forward and unpack the closing testimony of Paul's love chapter to the Corinthians. To prove that we are believers in Yeshua and responding to the loving truth of Yehovah, which is freely given to us, by the way, let us begin by revisiting the importance of the concept of what is faith, beginning with the declaration of Hebrews 11, verse 6. That is, the book of Hebrews 11, verse 6. And we'll continue with this in just a moment after we take this quick break. So stay with us. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 94. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi ben Mordechai. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio, and I'm Avi ben Mordechai. Let's now continue and move forward and unpack the closing testimony of Paul's love chapter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.13. To prove that we are believers in Yeshua and responding to the loving truth of Yehovah, let us begin by revisiting the importance of the concept of what is faith, beginning with the declaration of Hebrews 11 verse 6, that is, the book of Hebrews, 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to Elohim, or God, must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then there is this testimony from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen as coming from the Septuagint, that is the LXX, that is the 70 elders of ancient Israel who were in the Alexandria, Egypt area about 200 years before Yeshua. Here is their understanding and translation from the Hebrew text of Isaiah 28.16 as they were putting it into the Greek language. Behold, I lay in Sion a head corner or a head corner stone that is a Rosh Pinah, chosen, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame or will by no means be disappointed. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. It's coming from the Hebrew root Yud Kuf Resh, Yakar, meaning scarce or precious or valuable or very, very expensive. It means that the salvation that our Father in Heaven gained for us was simply not something cheap and a kind of bargain basement find. Nope, not at all. The salvation gift of Yehovah 
cost him exceedingly. And all that he asks is that we would receive it and not question that free gift, as if to say, what is this stuff? What do I need it for? Ah, get it away from me. You know, and similar statements of refusal to receive what he calls love and what Yeshua referred to in John 15, 13 as the statement, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You see, Yehovah doesn't like to hear the kind of talk that says, thanks but no thanks, I don't need it, or it's okay, I I don't want your stuff, I I don't want your religion, I don't need you, and I don't need you to tell me what I need or what I don't need. I like living life on my own terms, and if I'm going to get saved from anything, if I should need to get saved, listen, I'll just do it myself. Thank you very much. Nah, that's not what he wants to hear. This kind of refusal to the face of Jehovah's free gift is not something that he just turns a blind eye towards. Firmly, the salvation that Jehovah bought and paid for with the lifeblood of his Son, the Word, the Messiah of all eternity, which was a free and loving gift, this was bestowed on all who will believe it and receive it and not question its validity, period. The ideas of faith and belief are collectively one of Yeshua's core messages that he taught over and over again. Once again, let's go back to Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is immersed or baptized in the word will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And John 6, 47, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, likewise, it was also the message of another man by the name of Philip, another disciple of Yeshua. Here's how it reads in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Now, as they went down the road, referring to Philip and an Ethiopian government official, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Well, see, look, here's water. What hinders me from being immersed or baptized? Look at Philip's response. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Yeshua Mashiach is the Ben Ha Elohim, or the Son of God. While Philip had been talking to him about all kinds of prophetic significances, particularly from the book of Isaiah. So this man just said, I believe. And he was immersed, and that brought him from spiritual childhood into spiritual manhood right then and there. Just like Noah and Abraham and Job and Manoah and so many others that had gone before them. So, beginning with the Genesis creation story narrative, all of humanity is offered Jehovah's salvation message 
through the very same process, which is faith. And that is whether looking forward in time or backward in time to that one worldwide event of the late Second Temple period in the land that is today called Israel. Yeshua's death, his burial, his resurrection. That is what all of these people were looking toward. All those people mentioned in the faith chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. The story has always remained the same. All those from Genesis all the way to Yeshua, they were looking forward to what he was going to accomplish with his arrival. And for us, on the other side of that execution stake to this very day, we're looking back at the same event and we're getting saved in the same way, which is through faith. So the story has remained the same all through these generations and millennia. Humanity's salvation has always been freely available by faith in Jehovah, period. And this is why, in the 12th century of this common era, Judaism's Moshe ben Maimon, also called the Rambam, wrote his 13 principles of the faith for Judaism, with each statement beginning with the words, Ani ma'amin, I believe. Now, the English terms faith or belief are translated from the Hebrew term Emuna. It is spelled Aleph, Mem, Vav, Nun, He. Emuna, which is derived from the three letter root Aleph, Mem, Nun. And uh, we get the word Amen or Amen from it. And this Hebrew root gives us a lot of other words and meanings that are related to Amen. For example, Aleph, Mem, Nun. From where we get the word amen, it also means a trainer or one being trained, a tutor, a mentor, a master coach, a guide, an instructor, a craftsman, a specialist, yes, and even an artist. And as I said, it's also the word for amen or amen, which in Hebrew means a truthful assertion, declaring with absolute certainty, so be it, meaning it's a verbal expression that speaks to us about making a faithful copy of something. Again, that's why we get the word amen, as if to say, I agree that this is a true and genuine and faithful copy. That's all we're saying when we say the word amen or amen. To possess emuna or faith, it really comes down to a meaning that relates to making a faithful copy of someone or something that was, is, or will be made in much the same way of an artist who paints a portrait of what they might be looking at like a model, whether it be a person, a place, or a thing. Thus, the term emuna, or faith, actually gives us an expression as if to say that be 
is mentored, trained, or coached by A. And A is the one doing the mentoring, doing the copying, or doing the training to put B on the artist's canvas. This is how one can understand Revelation 3.14. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the genesis or beginning of the creation belonging to Elohim or God. All of this establishes the basis for the biblical concept of the term faith. And this can best be illustrated with the story of Gidon, or Gideon, in the book of Judges of the Hebrew Scriptures, chapter 7, verse 17. This is a story depicting the event of when Gideon, or Gidon, showed 300 of his men under his command what he wanted them to do to ensure their military victory. Here is Judges 7.17. He said to them, referring to his men, Look at me and do the same. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. So, Yeshua expressed this Hebraic concept of faith from Judges 7.17 in his words as they are recorded in Matthew 16.24. Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the model of biblical faith. And with a similar teaching, the writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, also instructs us. Take a look at the statement here in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now notice this carefully. Looking unto Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. Wow, it sounds much like the statement that was given to us in Judges 7.17 with Gidon. Again, when he says to his men, Look at me and do the same. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you will do as I do. So you can see there is a clear understanding here of the concept of faith in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 that we are told to look unto Yeshua who goes before us as the author and finisher of our faith He did the very same thing as he saw and learned from the Father. Well, that is what I believe it means exactly. Take a look at this in John 5, 19. Then Yeshua answered and said to them, referring to his disciples or Talmudim, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees, the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. 
Yeshua explained from his testimony the principle of what all this biblical faith concept means. Again, let me say it in a little bit of a different way and drive the point home. Faith is the work of a master coach or a master craftsman or a guide or instructor or even a trainer, one who is painting a faithful copy of himself, we'll call that A, onto his canvas or his piece of work, we'll call this B. Now later, it is hoped by that artist, by that artisan, by that craftsman, by that guide, instructor, trainer, master coach, whatever you want to call him, it is hoped that a faithful copy will emerge, again, calling this B. There will be a faithful copy emerging from all of that work. But you see, the issue is that it is only possible if B submits to A, that is, the one receiving the copied information from the artist's hand, meaning A. Now, what I find very interesting is that today we know from the sciences of genetics and engineering that there is something called messenger RNA. This RNA delivers cellular instructions to the cell's DNA, which is then copied repeatedly to create, to repair, and to build up new life through the copying process. This is the biblical definition of what it means for us to have faith or belief in Yehovah through Yeshua. Therefore, the person of faith in Yehovah through Yeshua is one who was, is, and will be mentored, trained, instructed, coached, and copied by Yehovah, who is the master trainer. He's the same one in Yeshua who submitted to his father, as I previously mentioned. This is Yeshua speaking, as it is written, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. So this is precisely why Yehovah requires that we come to him in and with faith or belief. You see, he desires to paint a faithful copy of himself into each of us, but we must have the will to want to receive the instructions or to receive the coaching or the training or, yes, even the painted strokes of our master teacher. Likewise, he is the artist, and we are much like his canvas. He is the trainer, and we are the trained. This is how faith is defined in the biblical Hebrew mindset. So we can learn from Yaakov or James when he wrote his instructions from Yaakov or James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith that I have works or actions. Well, he goes on to say, 
show me your faith without your works or your actions, and I will show you my faith by my works or by my actions. And this is why the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is called the faith chapter. Hence, we learn from Hebrews 11.6, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to Elohim, or God, must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, Hebrews 11 tells us a lot about Jehovah's faithfulness and about what faith is amongst those who were called the faithful all through these past many millennia, that is, men and women who walked in trusting belief and faith throughout about six millennia to be exact. And this truth brings us to the second of Paul's defining terms on Jehovah's eternal love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. We'll deal with this on the next podcast which will be our last podcast in this 30-episode series on defining biblical love. I know some of you are probably saying, okay, Avi, I got it, I got it, that's enough. 30 episodes, ay, 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 you can stop already. Well, okay, but, uh, you know, look at I've gone through all of this. It's really been an important study to have to tackle and to deal with in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Nonetheless, I want to thank you for joining me, and we'll come back again on the next podcast. That's our final broadcast on this particular subject of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and Paul's love chapter, okay? Now, coming up shortly on Real Israel Talk Radio, I will be taking a deep dive into the subject of 900-plus written fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in Israel's Qumran caves in the 1940s. The published scrolls give us plenty of insights into the calendar issues of the late Second Temple period theology of Judaism. To help us navigate through the content of the scrolls, we will be hearing from two dedicated scholars— Professor Dr. James C. Vonderkam of Notre Dame University and Professor Dr. Rachel Elior of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Professor Vonderkam had this to say concerning the calendar issues in ancient Jerusalem. There was a calendar dispute between the group associated with the scrolls and the authorities in Jerusalem, the priests in the temple, and so on. Now, we have good reason for thinking there were plenty of disagreements between the scrolls group and the uh, authorities at the temple in Jerusalem. Commentary on the prophecy of Habakkuk talks about the wicked priest pursuing the teacher of righteousness. This text says he pursued the teacher of righteousness on the teacher of righteousness day of atonement, Yom Kippur. The wicked priest is really the high priest, and he's pursuing this enemy of his, the teacher of righteousness, on the latter's day of atonement. And it sounds like they, they're not 
observing the Day of Atonement at the same time, on the same day. And since the Day of Atonement is a uh, Sabbath of Sabbaths, there's no travel on that day. So how in the world could he have been pursuing an enemy on the Day of Atonement? It seemed like they were observing a Day of Atonement at different times, and that was a hint that there was a different calendar. Then when some scrolls were found that specifically mentioned this 364-day calendar, it became very likely that that, that was the, the issue. The teacher was uh, observing the Day of Atonement according to that 364-day calendar. Uh, the wicked priest in Jerusalem was not. He was using a different calendar to date. We have no reason for thinking that, let's say, in the, in the first century, before the Common Era, that there was uh, a solar calendar in the Jerusalem temple, a 364-day calendar. They were observing a Day of Atonement at different times, and that was a hint that there was a different calendar. I think it's fair to say that we do not have an explanation from these people about uh, how they came to the conclusion that you must date sacred festivals by the uh, solar calendar, the 364-day calendar, when uh, their opponents could say, well, read Genesis 1, uh, what it says about the luminaries there, the sun and the moon. Stay tuned to Real Israel Talk Radio as we take a deep dive into understanding Judaism's calendar issues in the written fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the books of Enoch and Jubilees. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments, navigate over to our website at www.cominghome.co.il. Okay, take care and have a great week. I'm Avi Ben-Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.